Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond, The Fate of Human Societies. This is a book that attempts to provide a short history of the last 13,000 years. And it came from when Jared Diamond, he was studying bird watching in Papua New Guinea. He came across this local politician, Yali, who asked him quite a, a simple but profound question. He said, why is it that you white people developed so much cargo and brought it to New Guinea, whereas we black people have little cargo of our own? It's quite a profound question and it can be asked in a few different ways. You could look at it as if... You know, why weren't Native Americans, the Africans or the Aboriginal Australians the ones who really travelled across the globe and dominated Europe rather than all the Europeans going around to dominate the world? It's um, obviously we, there's no such thing as racism anymore that we think of, but really most of us have some kind of private or unconscious beliefs that, you know, if you ask an Australian about the history of the ancient Aborigines, you know, 40,000 years they've been on this country, but within a couple of hundred years when the whites came, they completely changed and we think there must be some kind of mm. primitive nature of the Aborigines themselves that they weren't able to develop technology and literature and, and come up with these new ideas. Yeah, it's an unconscious belief everyone has. Like you look at them and you think, oh, they haven't done a hell of a lot for 40,000 years, whereas all the white folks down there, they've created all these new technologies, weapons, writing, language, boats, all these kind of things. So, you know, perhaps cognitively there might be a difference in capacities. Yeah, you think that for 40,000 years, they didn't create these things on their own. And even when the whites came and brought them, they weren't able to adapt to them themselves. So, there is some kind of idea that maybe there is just this uh, natural difference between Aboriginals and, and white Europeans. So, these racist explanations, they're pretty loathsome to hear. But uh, thankfully, the book actually gets into it and you're going to find out that why all the reasons these are really wrong. So, the book in one sentence, which we're going to find out... History followed different courses for different people because of differences among people's environments, not because of biological differences amongst the people themselves. Yeah, so that's an important point to double down on. I think that whilst we may hold these ideas that maybe people are just different, actually it's nothing to do with the biology of the people, it's actually the environments in which they developed in. Diamond provides a very visceral example between the differences between the old world and the new world. So think about it. In 1492, Columbus discovered, so discovered being in parenthesis because it already been discovered, <laughs> of the Caribbean islands, densely populated by the Native Americans. So you had all these Spaniards coming in, right, with their ships and their boats and the technologies they developed, and they're landing here in these uh, primitive societies as well. So there was a huge difference between the levels both had reached at that point. Yeah, this was the biggest population shift of modern times where you've got the new world, the Europeans, and they're moving into the old world of the Native Americans. And this is most vividly explained through, how did I, I don't know how I ended up with these words, but the Incan emperor, Atahuapa, and the Spanish leader, Francisco Pizarro, in the highland town of Cajamarca. Man, normally I'd try to do this, so you have to do those pronunciations, mm. but uh, I reckon I got, I got sort of close there. And what we've got here is we've got the Spanish coming in. They've got 168 soldiers. They've come by boat. They've come to unfamiliar terrain. They're completely ignorant of the local inhabitants. They've got no idea what's there. They're completely out of touch with Spain. You know, it's a thousand miles away from, from Panama where they find themselves. They're far beyond reach. There's no reinforcements that are going to come to be able to save them. And they're suddenly confronted with 80,000 Native American soldiers. So if you think about it, you've got 168 Spanish, you've got 80,000 soldiers. It's pretty obvious who you'd think would win this battle. 
So Pizarro, he had the goal of conquering this area, right? And he only had 168 soldiers, but he had some strategy and some writing from the, the monarchs about how to best handle this situation. So as they approached Atahualpa, all of a sudden, the Indians started sweeping the road. So there were waves and waves of the different levels of soldier that were about to attack them. But Pizarro, he was on the flanks and he announced a surprise attack when they got close to Atahualpa, the leader. He yelled out, come out, Christians, come at these enemy dogs. So the Spanish, they started firing guns, they started blasting their trumpets, they rode out on their horses, they had their armor, they had their swords, they came out and started chopping heads off and chopping arms off and chopping people in half. And uh, the Indians really had nothing to contend with. They had their bows and arrows, they had their primitive weapons. There was all these things they'd never seen before. They'd never seen trumpets, they'd never heard these sounds before, they'd never seen the steel, they'd never heard the guns. They were just completely outmatched. Yeah, if you've never seen a trumpet, you never heard or fired a gun and you've seen these people come out in these armors, that almost look like gods, right? And you're just sitting there and you've got your little bow and arrow and your wooden clubs and everything. So despite having 80,000 people, the cavalry came through and they cut them all up and there was six to 7,000 who lay dead. Many had limbs cut off and it was extraordinary to see a ruler. So Atahualpa, he was obviously captured in such a short period of time and it being such a one-sided affair. So it's a very vivid and very clear demonstration of the differences between different societies. And it's a continuation of that, that question from the start about you know how does do some people evolve in a way that was far superior to other people? What factors led to this? And it's really that question of how did these 168 soldiers defeat an army of 80,000? Now, in the rest of this episode, we're going to unpack why the people in Spain were the ones who went out and discovered, in parenthesis, the old world. So, we're going to look at it in the perspective of ultimate courses, also known as something like the real reason, which gave rise to proximate courses. And the proximate causes on the surface seem like they're the reasons, but in reality, it was actually the ultimate causes that made the real differences in societies. Now, it all starts at the Fertile Crescent, which is really the birthplace of modern civilization. So if you look on a map, it's the place of Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Cyprus, that whole area that we associate as desert today. Back in the day, thousands of years ago, it was actually one of the most productive parts on the whole planet Earth. So this place here, this fertile crescent known as the cradle of civilization, this was the earliest site of discovery for a whole string of these developments. It was the first cities, the first writing, the first empires, and really the first real genuine civilization where people were working together to build a society. So it was one of the most productive parts on the earth to you know, allow for civilization to thrive. But it was really for a couple of reasons. First, Western Eurasia had the largest zone of a Mediterranean climate. It was really in that sweet spot to allow for a high diversity of wild plant and animal species, higher than, say, you know, in the similar zones of, say, Australia in the desert there. And the second reason is it had the greatest climate variation from season to season and year to year. So that variation in climate favoured evolution among the flora and fauna, and eventually there was a serious wide variety of animals and plants. So the people of the Fertile Crescent, they domesticated local plants much earlier than anybody else on earth. They had far more variety in the species of plants. They domesticated far more productive and valuable species. They domesticated a wider range. They had more intense food production. They had dense populations that they were able to grow rapidly. And as a result, they entered this modern world with advanced technology. So the reason it happened in this Fertile Crescent and not anywhere else 
was due to the limitations of the other environments around the world as opposed to the limitations of the people themselves. Having access to a wider variety of plants and animal species is a very big deal because if you go from hunter-gatherer society, right, where you're spending all day hunting food and you're resting by the rock and you're not doing a hell of a lot more than just going out and eating like, you know, other animals going around in the world right now, it is a huge leap forward when your society or your town develops agriculture. So most of the species that we think of as food or most of the, the plants around us in those ancient times were pretty useless in terms of fueling us. They were either indigestible like tree bark or they were poisonous like mushrooms or they had uh, no nutritional value like jellyfish or they were tedious to prepare like these tiny little nuts that weren't worth eating or they were difficult to gather like the larvae of insects who were hidden deep within tree bark or they were just dangerous to hunt like rhinoceroses. If you've got all of these things that it's really, really hard and the, the whole tribe then has to go out and work and get a little bit of food each and you're basically just getting enough food for you and your family, every single person in the society is responsible for producing food. If you can then make the shift to an agricultural society where a small number of people are able to harvest crops uh, and provide the food for everybody else, it frees up the rest of society to start thinking about other things, maybe turning to woodwork or becoming steelmakers or becoming politicians or becoming kings. Basically, if you no longer have to provide food, you can start thinking of doing something else. So it allowed specialization in that way, but also a much, much greater population density if you're a hunter-gatherer, mother, shifting from camp to camp, carrying a child and just a couple of possessions, that's a lot of effort. You can't afford to bear your next child until your toddler can actually move along with you. So you can't have as many kids in your lifetime. Whereas sedentary people, by contrast, if you're just sitting there on a farm, you're unconstrained with the problem of carrying your children and carrying all your belongings everywhere. So you can really raise as many children as you possibly can feed. So this higher birth rate of food producers together with their ability to feed more people per acre, led them to achieve much, much higher population densities. So we've highlighted the importance of agriculture. It means that you can shift from a nomadic hunter-gatherer society where everybody has to go out and fight for food. Now we're shifting to the agricultural society where you can stay in place. You've got a few people who are making all the food and everybody else can think of doing other things, whether that's pumping out new babies or pumping out new inventions. So now the important question is, if all of these crops were originally wild plant species, how did certain plants be able to be turned into crops that we could regularly harvest. Yeah, think about it. If you're a caveman or cavewoman sitting there gnawing on your meat or your berry, how the hell do you go about domesticating a plant so it turns into an agriculture? So how was this accomplished? So what Dorman says, it actually started in a very unconscious manner, not by a choice or not by a conscious design. They took a wild ancestor of some kind of crop as we know it today to have it evolve to become more useful for the human consumers like us. So back in the hunter-gatherer days, for example, you got something called a teostein, which is a grass, and over time, it turned into a corn on the cob as we know it today. Or wild rice, you know, right now, if you, you can't go out and eat wild rice, you'll die straight away, but over time, it turned into basmati rice mm. like you got in your cupboard. You or you make a delicious butter chicken. Butter chicken. <laughs> but back in the day, it was like the equivalent of eating bark. So, you know, it did evolve into being edible for us. So let's switch this for a second, look at it from the plant's point of view. Obviously, if you're a plant, you want to survive somehow. So as far as plants are concerned, they weren't consciously becoming domesticated themselves. They were just wanting to perpetuate their own species, really. 
So in the same way that humans and, and all animals want to propagate and, and provide for their offspring, plants sort of do the same sort of thing. Yeah, if you look at it from the plant's point of view, I know Yuval Noah Harari said this in Sapiens, it's almost like plants domesticated humans mm. because plants changed themselves to the point where humans cultivated plants to actually propagate them. So it's actually these small number of species that are actually dominating the planet and that's looking at it from the, from the plant's point of view. It's pretty clever. So if you think if you're a, you're a plant, you want to make a, a baby plant uh, consciously or unconsciously, I don't know, do, do plants have consciousness? That's probably a, another question it's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, you, if you need to create a seed and that seed then gets passed on to go into the ground and then become a new plant, then one great way to pass on your seed is to wrap your seed in this tasty, tasty fruit. So if you're in this, inside this tasty fruit, uh, a human or an animal is going to come along and munch on that fruit. They're going to, whilst they're eating that fruit, they're also going to eat those seeds. And the seed, if it's clever enough, it's going to pass through the digestive system without actually being digested. It's going to remain as the seed. And once the animal poops it out, that seed can then sprout itself and turn into a new tree producing new fruit. Yeah, it's very interesting. So it was the, where the poop landed for the humans. So the human latrines were the first testing grounds of these unconscious cop breeders. So, you know, everyone might just do a poop around the corner next to that rock over there. Then over time, the most successful plants started developing around that rock around there and everyone started eat around. <laughs> Imagine that. If you, you, so you take a dump and then a corn sprouts out of it. So then you go and eat the, the corn. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the most successful plants around humans. So it was an unconscious way of developing agriculture. Then over time, they thought, all right, that corn on the cob with that seed is a successful piece of food. So then later down the track, humans started consciously planting those seeds because they knew that it was going to be able to feed them. Yeah, it is very interesting if you look at it from the plant's perspective. They did bloody well to be able to, to propagate themselves and continue their own species. And at the start, it was very unconscious by the humans. They were probably just picking based on you know the size of the fruit. If they're pretty hungry, they're going to go for the biggest fruit. They're going to go on the taste. If they've got a nice sweet apple, it's going to be better than a, a bitter, sour Granny Smith. Mm. If you think of the fleshiness as well, if it's really, really hard for a human to chomp down, they're probably not going to eat it compared to if it's a nice, sweet, soft, juicy mango. So all of these things that the humans are unconsciously selecting the best fruit and these are the, then the ones that survive. So lima beans, watermelons, potatoes, eggplants, cabbages. There's a load of familiar crops that we like today, but to wild ancestors, they were bitter and they were poisonous. But it was occasionally that random individual ate one and then the plant they chose, if it had a mutation to be available to humans, over time that would pass through and then the plant which allowed that mutation was a bit more successful with humans. Then the co-evolution happened and we've got all the fruits, so your, your, your Coles and your Woolies or your Costco's or your Walmarts or wherever you, you know, your local supermarket is around the world as we know it today. And if you look at some of the most successful crops that we see today, things like wheat, things like barley, things like peas, these actually popped up in the Fertile Crescent. These were the things that were domesticated around 10,000 years ago in that sweet spot of the Fertile Crescent where we saw everything else pop up around it. These were the plants that were the most easily edible. They gave the highest yields in the wild. They were also easily grown. They grew quickly and they could also be readily stored to be eaten at a later date. Yeah, if you got access to things like wheat, barley and peas and bread and stuff like that, you're at a huge advantage to the people on the other continents, right, who are just going around, running around all day, spending all their energy chasing animals to get their food. 
So this is why the Fertile Crescent is one hell of a place to be, right? When you're 10,000 years ago, trying to live the, the best life you can and you got access to easy calories that actually are highly nutritious for you. So developing agriculture and domesticating plants in a way that then you can reliably have a regular source of food production is vitally important. Another equally important thing is the domestication of animals. If you think about it, rather than trying to run out through the jungle and hunt down that deer and bring one deer back for your village, if you can domesticate animals, it's going to be a lot easier for society. It means you've got potentially a regular source of meat. It also means if you've got things like a a sheep or something that you can take their wool and then you've got it for warmth or for building your houses, or if you think of maybe some dogs that you can use for protection, domesticating animals is another vitally important thing about developing an agricultural society. So obviously the places that have access to a large number of animals gives you a better chance of being able to domesticate it. So if you look at the history of large animals, say on the continent of Africa where we see loads of large animals today, your zebras, your lions, your elephants and everything like that, they actually co-evolved with humans the whole time. So they learned when they see a human run away, that's one hell of a predator to be scared of. But what happened was about thirty to 40,000 years ago, us humans, we went around and colonized the rest of the world. We went to Indonesia, New Guinea. Some of these old school curious characters actually built boats and went to Australia and end up you know, creating the Aboriginal societies today. So think about it. If you land on Australia now as a human, 30,000 years ago, it was just as many big mammals on that continent as there was in Africa. But if you're a big giant kangaroo or a rhino-like marsupial or a huge lebbit or a one-ton lizard, you're a giant python or you're a land-dwelling crocodile and you see you're human, you know, you've got a six-foot-one kind of skinny-looking thing, you're not going to be that scared. So, it hasn't been evolved to actually be scared of humans. So, they were sitting ducks for the first humans who colonized there and an easy source of meat. So, whereas you've got a large population and a large variety of different huge big animals in Africa that evolved at the same time as humans, so they knew to stay away from humans, they knew the humans were the the killers that could come and take them down and so they would always run away from humans. If you then go to Australia, there's all these animals that have never seen a human before. They're not scared of them. They're sitting ducks, as you say. They're easy prey for the humans to take them all down. And as it turned out, the humans actually wiped out a lot of these massive species. Yeah, we talk a lot about extinction today, but really the biggest mass extinction was around this time for the big wild animals. So as previously, there was a lot of huge animals lurking the planet on the different continents. 10,000 years ago, it was down to 148 big wild animals. So now we've got this starting point. We've got 148 of these big wild animals left. How many of these can we actually domesticate? How many of these can we actually, I guess, train up and, and manage to be that reliable source of food or warmth or shelter or protection? So there's five different reasons which create the difference between an animal being domesticated and the animal not being domesticated for our use. So the first reason is diet. So if you have to feed your animal way too much for your use, there's no point domesticating because you're wasting all the food that you've grown on the animal. So it's because of this, only the herbivorous animals were available to be domesticated. If you've got a carnivore animal, that means you could grow other herbivorous animals to feed to the carnivore animals and then you eat the carnivore. Hmm. In terms of the energy conversion, it's way too much. So that rules out all the carnivore animals on the planet for our domestication. That's it. He says in terms of, of biomass, you don't, 
put on 100% of the mass that you consume. He said it's normally around 10%. So say if you want to grow a 1,000-pound cow, you need to have 10,000 pounds of corn. So either you can eat that 10,000 pounds of corn or you can eat that 1,000-pound cow. But then if you think of it, if you want a 1,000-pound lion, that means you need to feed that lion 10,000 pounds of cow and that means you need 100,000 pounds of corn. So basically that second level is just one step too far. It's just a waste of resources. So you're either eating the, the plants directly or you're eating the herbivorous animals. An interesting one here as well is growth rate. So to be worth keeping, you need to be able to domesticate the animals quickly. You need to be able to you know, chuck them in a room and let them have sex and just procreate like wildfire. But there's actually some animals out there that don't like having sex in front of others. <laughs> um, for example, you've got animals and gorillas here. And I'd put humans in that category as well. I totally understand <laughs> it from the, uh, the gorilla's point of view. It's pretty yeah, weird to have sure. sex in front of it. Yeah, some people said, are into that. It says it, it knocks out uh, elephants because they don't grow quickly enough. You want to be able to grow this thing and eat it quickly. You can't wait decades for it to grow to a size that's worth eating. Another important factor is the disposition of these animals. If there's a, a nasty animal that you're trying to domesticate and it turns around and bites your head off that's pretty much a game a game over like a grizzly bear that's ruled that out african buffalo is gone zebras are gone turns out zebras are pretty Mm. nasty little animals they are so another big reason here is tendency to panic so some have co-evolved with humans and they're programmed to just run away at any threat you know so we're never gonna be able to domesticate it and that rules out all the animals in africa Mm. because they grew up with us and they thought we're bad news and rightly so from an animal's point of view, whereas the animals on the other continents, they were easily tamed by us. And then the final criteria is a social structure amongst these animals. If they live in herds and have this dominance hierarchy where, you know, say if it's a sheep and then there's a, a, a king sheep amongst these sheep and that most of the rest of the herd follows the one leader, a human can actually then slot themselves in at the top of that dominance hierarchy. If they're they're wild animals that don't congregate in herds that just run off on their own. There's no way you can domesticate that. You can only really domesticate it if they're used to herding and grouping together and living in some kind of structure where humans can then manipulate that dominance hierarchy to put themselves at the top. So we've gone through a bunch of reasons there why animals can't be domesticated. So let's look at it again in terms of geography. So with the Fertile Crescent and Eurasia, that whole stretch of land, they had 72 large mammals and because of the reasons we just mentioned, a lot of them were eliminated for domestication, but they were left with 13 to choose from, which is actually the most out of all continents. If you look at Africa, they had 51 species of these large land-dwelling herbivorous animals, but because of all these reasons we listed, their growth rate, their nasty disposition, their tendency to panic or their social structure, none of these animals could be domesticated. If you look in the Americas, they had one large mammal that couldn't be domesticated. And if you look at Australia, as we said, all those large mammals had been wiped out. So they didn't have any either. So the only place left in the world is Europe and Asia, who are the only ones who are able to domesticate animals. So again, if you're in that fertile crescent, it's a good spot go, to be. Oh, it's great. You got chickens, you got pigs. <laughs> You can grow bread. You can you can pretty much create a pork sandwich, can't you? <laughs> you certainly can. They just need a bit of. Um, they need to bring the Asian, you know, the soy sauce or the hoisin over, and you've got a very very delicious meal. Well, you can, mate, because you're in <laughs> you're in the fertile crescent. You've got access to Asia, and you've got access to Europe. Mate, if you're in Australia, if you're in the Americas, if you're on all the other continents, you've got a much harder end of the deal, don't you? So we've spoken about the rise of agriculture in terms of its importance for creating these sorts of societies. We've talked about domesticating plants. We've talked about domesticating animals. Now, what's 
equally as important as this rise of agriculture is also the spread of agriculture. So as you said, Jones, man, if uh, the tribe next door has got a couple of pigs and then the tribe 100 miles away has got the, the bread and then you need that tribe that's either got the, the pasta sauce on one end or the, <laughs> the soy sauce on the other, if you can all come together and work together, that's when then you can make those tasty, tasty uh, pork bow. It's <laughs> quite specific there. But that is, that's exactly right. If you're just left with bread, if you're just left with pork, if you're just left with a single nutrient, <laughs> then your diet is nowhere near as complex and superior for your health uh, as developing as a society. So the spread of agriculture is very important, but also the spread of other things like if you've invented something new and really cool, you want to be able to share that with your mates in the other town you know, across the road. You might have come up with a wheel, you might have come up with writing or anything like that. So what turns out to be the most important factor in the diffusion of agriculture or any kind of new innovation is the tilt of the axes. So if you look at a map of the world, uh, continents like America and Africa, they span north to south distance over a real huge area. And you compare that to our lovely favorite place in Eurasia in the Fertile Crescent, that whole landmass it spans east to west and also a very large area. So the reason why east to west is much more favorable for spreading whether it's plants or animals or ideas and innovations is that by spreading east to west, you're really in the same types of climates. So if you move across 500 miles to the east or to the west, the climate's going to be pretty, pretty similar. But if you move 500 miles north or south, you could find yourself in a completely different area. So that means spreading from Europe across to Asia is quite easy, but spreading, say, from Egypt down to South Africa is going to be much more difficult. That's exactly it. So if you're in the Fertile Crescent, you've got a chicken, that chicken innovation or the wheel or anything you invent there, that can get all the way to where you know modern-day Spain is and be of access to Pizarro when he dominated the new world. But if you look at something like corn that was developed in Mexico, it's very difficult for that to spread all the way north to get to Canada because, you know, corn can't grow in Canada, but it can in Mexico. So what history saw was rapid spread across Eurasia, but very, very slow diffusion of ideas down Africa or up and down the Americas. So it's actually interesting that the creation of the wheel happened twice independently. So in around 3000 BC, the wheel was invented in Asia and it spread rapidly all across Eurasia in just a few short centuries. So because it was east to west, it was able to spread all the way across through the Fertile Crescent and across continuing into Europe. But at the same time, it's kind of crazy that at the same time, the wheel was also invented in Mexico but because of this north-south orientation of the Americas, it was never able to spread down through the Andes and into South America, and it was never able to spread up all the way up to Canada. So this faster spread of agriculture and innovation played a serious role in the diffusion of Eurasian writing, the metallurgy, the iron, the steel, the technology, and the empires as we know it today. So if you think about that war that we were speaking about at the start with Pizarro versus Atahualpa, there was obviously huge differences. And what we've covered here is is the ultimate real causes of these differences. It was the rise and spread of animal and plant agriculture that could move easily east to west, which allowed food surpluses, meaning people could go out there and specialize in different stuff and tinker with things and innovate. And then when you've innovated because the tilt of the axis, you can actually spread it east to west. So this is the reason why modern civilization as we know it was the birthplace in the Fertile Crescent.
So that's what Jared Diamond calls the ultimate causes. He's talking about the rise and the spread of agriculture and ideas. In addition to these ultimate causes, he also has what he calls proximate causes. So these are things that also had a massive impact, but they weren't at the core or they weren't the root reason of why some societies were able to dominate others. So one of these proximate causes is germs. So the links connecting livestock and crops to germs is really unforgettable for Jared Diamond. Uh, one time he was traveling South America with his doctor and he went into a hospital room to deal with a married couple that was stressed out by this really mysterious illness. So the husband is this small, timid man. He was sick with pneumonia caused by an unidentified microbe. So he was trying to explain this in really poor English. And his wife was the translator between this man and the doctor. And she was really worried about her husband's condition. So she was the middle person and the doctor asked the wife, had the husband had any sexual experiences that may have caused the infection? And then the husband, he, he turned red and pulled himself together and he kind of tried to disappear under the blankets as he stammered uh, his barely audible words to his wife. And the wife couldn't believe her ears. She absolutely smacked this little man up and she towered over him, slammed his head full with force into the ground and stormed out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it took a while to, to, for the doctor to work out what the hell had happened. He'd just seen this, this man utter something. His wife go into an absolute fit of rage and knocked him out. The doctor had to revive him and eventually he was able to put together the pieces of this puzzle. And it turned out that this man on a, on a recent visit to their family farm, he'd had uh, repeated intercourse with with some of their sheep. <laughs> <laughs> That's huge, man. <laughs> That's huge. It's a big deal. So not, not everyone out there loves uh, sheep as much as this bloke did. Do this they? guy loves sheep. <laughs> but even if you, if you think about the course of human history, all you need is a 0.001% of the population, right, to uh, have a, to love their, their, their animals as much as this bloke did. And then all of a sudden, you've got a conduit between diseases that are inside the sheep to get toward the human race and then all of a sudden humans have got it forever. Yeah, that's it. And if you, if you look around the world, it's not just uh, as extreme cases of that, but we invite animals into our house. We've got pets, we've got cats and dogs, we've got our livestock that we're breeding, we're caring for and then we're eating them as well. Even if you look at Australia today, there's when he wrote this book in the 90s, there were 17 million people and there was 160 billion livestock in Australia. Mm. They're killing it. So, all the major killers in history, the germs like smallpox, flu, tuberculosis, malaria, the plague, measles, cholera, all these things originated from animals. And these diseases have been the biggest killers of people in all of history. Until World War II, more victims of war died of microbes than battle wounds. So, if you look back at history, it's a much more compelling narrative of some general going out there and defeating the, the other army. But in reality, it's actually all about the microbes. Who's got the best microbes, not the best <laughs> weapons, who can deliver it to the other army? And if the other army is not ready for these microbes, then they're going to get decimated much more than any new weapon would. It's very crazy. So let's take a, a, a quick step back from that sheep story and think about, <laughs> think about what is a disease. So a disease is some microbes that have evolved to make us sick. So there's a lot of things living within inside of ourselves that don't make us sick, but there's this very small few that have evolved in a way that really fucks up the, the humans. So naturally, we're disposed to think about diseases from our own point of view. You know, what can we do to save ourselves from getting these or what can we do to kill it once we get it? And we sort of forget about what's the, the microbes point of view. So similar to like we did with the plants, where we thought about, you know, 
evolution from a plant's perspective. Let's think about the evolution of microbes and germs from the germ's perspective. Mm, It's just another form of life. Like us, it just wants to spread itself around and have more babies. And the one that spreads itself more successfully, it's actually going to be more abundant in the gene pool and be more successful overall. So, if you're a germ, basically, you want to be able to make the host that you're in spread you out more and more and more successfully. So, one of the easiest ways, it's pretty passive and effortless on, the, on behalf of the microbe, is for the host to be eaten by another host. So, if you're an animal and you eat another animal that's got the disease, all of a sudden, you've just got this disease as well. Things like salmonella, we can contract that by eating eggs or eating meat. So, that's the, the first and most easiest ways for the germs to spread is by one organism eating another. Some other microbes, they don't wait for the host to die and get eaten. Instead, they hitchhike across the saliva of an insect that bites the old host and flies into the new host. So, it's a free ride. So, if a mozzie comes up Mm. and bites your uncle and the uncle's got malaria or something like that and then comes over to you and bites you, all of a sudden, that microbe's hitchhiked from person to person. Yeah, things like mosquitoes, fleas or lice, they can spread these things and things like malaria, the plague and typhoid, they've all been spread in this way. And even if you think about it, like AIDS is spread from mother to baby by a similar sort of mechanism. Even more vigorous than than this, hitchhiking a ride, is things like the common cold or influenza and that's where the victim can cough or sneeze and spread these microbes towards potential new hosts. Yeah, I find that very interesting. I've never looked at it like why the hell do we sneeze and cough? It's actually the microbe strategy. So, there's some living thing that's inside you that's found a way to cause a reaction in your body for itself to spread more successfully. Or another way it might do it, it might make you have diarrhea, which is another interesting thing. Like right now, we've got toilets, but back in the day, that diarrhea, when it's liquid, it's going to spread much more <laughs> and get into the water supply much more <laughs> in a much more serious way than if it's just a solid thing just sitting there like a rock. <laughs> Very true, very true. And just to go a little bit meta on this episode and on the podcast, we're actually going to do this episode in March uh, and (laughs) we had the notes ready, we'd read the book, we're ready to record and we thought maybe we should hold off a couple of months considering that the whole world's going through something like this where germs are spreading from person to person. Uh, We thought we'd just wait a a couple of months till things sort of settled a little bit before we got this episode out there. Yeah, we want to hit record and it's like the middle of the biggest death event of human (laughs) history. (laughs) We're We're talking about people coming and wiping out entire civilizations by spreading germs. We thought we'd just we'd wait a couple of weeks on that one. But it is a good example of how COVID has been successful and this is the way it does spread around the world. It does hitchhike across our saliva. In this case, it gets inside that human and changes that human's biology in a way that it makes you sneeze. And then because you're sneezing, the coronavirus can hitchhike across the saliva onto more people and then spread and spread and spread like that. So that's from the germs perspective, how they've developed themselves in a way to spread and, and best perpetuate themselves. Humans have also evolved some kind of measures to try to kill or attack these microbes when they come up. So one way we do that is through heat. We found that some micro... When I say we found that, like our bodies just worked it out. We didn't actively do this. (laughs) But we found that some microbes are pretty sensitive to heat. So if a little germ comes our way, if our body heats itself up, in some cases, it can actually be effective in killing that germ before we get sick. Mm, so that's why you have a body temperature. It's a technique of your body to trying to kill all the microbes that aren't meant to be inside your body. Another common response of ours is to mobilize the immune system. So our white blood cells have figured out to seek out and kill these foreign microbes. And you've built these specific antibodies that you gradually build up against a particular microbe. So it makes it much more difficult for that microbe to come in and take down your body. 
So that's, you know, naturally it happens where if you get a germ and your body goes and attacks it, it's learned how to kill it. And to take this to the next level, this is the principle of vaccinations where you inject a, a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of some new germ, the body goes and attacks it and it's learned how to get it so that next time if the big germ comes along, your body's learned how to kill it before it kills you. So remember, we're looking at it from the microbes point of view. All of a sudden, you might create some tricks to actually change your molecular structure just a little bit to be more successful against those humans. So over time, the human body it learns tricks against the microbes. The microbes are learned counter tricks to beat the humans and then the humans go counter, counter tricks and so forth. Then it's locked into an escalating evolutionary contest and for all the side that's going to lose this contest, it means you might fall out of the gene pool entirely. So this co-evolution that we've gone through where the germs are getting stronger but also the humans are getting stronger at fighting it means that the germs are getting more and more powerful. They're working out more and more tricks. And because the people we've talked about in the Fertile Crescent, they've had the domestication of plants and animals, they're dealing with livestock, they've domesticated some animals, they've been exposed to a lot more germs and the bodies have gone through the process of working out how to fight these germs when they come along. So if you're a germ battling against someone from the Fertile Crescent, it's a serious battle going on between you and their immune system. But if you hitch a ride on one of their boats with that human and then you go to a new land and you find another human who hasn't been in this co-evolution with you, you're going to absolutely annihilate their immune system because they haven't gone through this co-evolutionary process. So the importance of these lethal microbes in human history is well illustrated by when the Europeans conquered the Americas if you look at it going, going across, far more Native Americans died in bed from Eurasian germs than died out on the battlefield as a victim of the guns and the swords. Half the Aztecs were killed by one single Spaniard prisoner alone. So this one single dude, he brought smallpox with him and then once the Aztecs started copping smallpox off him, they were just wiped out. Their immune system stood no chance. They hadn't developed alongside these germs, so they were all wiped out. He also talks about a single century in Mexico from 1500 to 1600 where their population dropped from 20 million to less than 2 million. So we're talking about over 90% of their population was wiped out by European germs. So it's these germs that have really driven a lot of history, but you never hear about them because it makes for a much better story of victim and perpetrator of Europeans coming to native lands and murdering everybody. In reality, the greatest perpetrator were the microbes that hitched along for the ride. So the next proximate cause at the service is specialization. So remember when you've got agriculture, it means you can get a couple of people who can just produce food for a much greater amount of people, allowing everybody else to go out there and specialize in a whole range of different things. Once people no longer had to go and get their own food, once they could rely on others within society for their food, some people turned towards literature. So they had more time for writing, for focusing on language, for putting written word down. Yeah, it's interesting that the only places that writing arose independently were places where agriculture first developed. So the Fertile Crescent, Mexico and China. Yeah. So writing meant a few things. It meant firstly, it was a way of communication from person to person to so say that the kings and the monarchs could communicate down to the merchants and the peasants, but it also meant the accumulation of knowledge across generations. So rather than having to teach by word of mouth, people were able to teach through literature and through writing. So it was like this compounding effect of the things that each generation learnt, the next generation could build on top of them. 
So early writing served the needs of political institutions. So you could have full-time bureaucrats stored by the food surpluses made by the peasants who were out there creating all the food. I mean, you could probably start making some kind of laws, some kind of tax system to centralize the money and you might start creating public infrastructure and public works. All of a sudden, nation be able to put together an army to you know, sail to another part of the world. Another big thing that came as a result of specialization was technology and new innovations. Diamond says, that, you know, as famously quipped that necessity is a mother of all invention. So if you've got people who are hunting, trying to wrangle that kangaroo to bring it home for their food, they don't have time to sit around and, and try to sharpen up their knives or create some kind of new tool. But once the food situation is taken care of, you've got these people who are able to spend the time and the effort and the energy that's required to, to tinker and play around and try to make something new. Yeah, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're just limited to what you can carry. So you're probably just going to carry a couple of things that are going to help you uh, kill that animal and, and eat it. But all of a sudden, when you've got agriculture and you're just living in the one spot, you start accumulating possessions and there's real need for different kind of things. And with those different things, you might bring them together and innovate with new ideas and new inventions. So with that food situation being taken care of and people settling in one place, in addition to there being less people required to get the food, and as we talked about earlier, the population density then increased because people were in one spot, they didn't have to move around, they could have more babies, more kids, population grew. And through these agricultural societies, we're seeing that in the Fertile Crescent, the population density was six times greater than the Americas, eight times greater than Africa, and 230 times greater than Australia. So because of that ultimate cause of agriculture, it led to greater population density, and with a larger population, it means you've got more inventors, more specialists, more people who are sort of competing to make better and better products. So you're getting greater and greater technologies. Mm, so over time in those civilizations, they were the ones who were able to have the time up their sleeve to over a long time create armor, create steel, create these kind of weapons, create boats, create ships and everything like that because they had those geographic circumstances to allow them to do so. Yeah. And the third big thing, in addition to literature and technology, was institutions. So people in these agricultural societies, they were able to create governments and they were able to create religions that could tie people together. Yeah. If you've got some shared ideology or religion, it can solve the problem of letting unrelated individuals live with each other without killing each other, providing them with a bond that's just not based on kinship. Like if you're a hunter gatherer, you know, you got your cousins, your auntie, your uncle, you're all mates with them and you're probably going to just look after them only. But all of a sudden, if you've got some kind of story about a god, you can have tens of thousands or even a million people in the one civilization and you're all bonded together because you've got this shared belief in this story that you were told. So there's two institutions. So if you've got either kings or chiefs or you know prime ministers, if you've got governments, these act as centralized decision makers. So they're able to tell the rest of the troops what to do. And secondly, through religion, we've built up this story that allows people to work together and it also gives them something to sacrifice themselves for. They go mm. into war, they're willing to uh, run into battle and if they die, they're happy to go because they're in the service of some god that's been created. So obviously that's a huge thing, having food surpluses, allowing everyone to do other things than just not going around and make food. And this really drove exponentially the development of modern civilization as we know it within the Fertile Crescent. It was this particular place on the planet where writing was allowed, 
and you could actually accumulate knowledge throughout the generations. You could have new technologies, people out there going and making steel and boats, and also institutions. So the people with the steel and the boats, you travel in groups of tens of thousands of people, all because you believe the same story and you've got the shared vision of why you should conquer other parts of the world. So we've made it through our brief overview of the last 13,000 years of human history. Let's take a quick look back to the start and think, what were we trying to work out in the first place? We've got our mate Yali, the Papua New Guinean politician who asked Jared Diamond, why is it that you white people develop so much cargo that you've brought with you to Papua New Guinea, whereas we black people have very little cargo of our own? Or as we said, a few different variations on that question, why was it that the Europeans went to conquer the Native Americans rather than the Native Americans going back the other way? Why was it the Africans and the Aboriginals who got decimated rather than the other way around? And ultimately, thinking back to our mate Atawapa and mm. the Cajamarca and Pizarro, how did those 168 Spanish soldiers decimate an entire army of 80,000 Native Americans? Mm, so it turns out it had nothing to do with a superior biology between those in Europe. It all basically just came down to luck and chance of the geography they were in. They had the Fertile Crescent, which by chance had the access to the widest diversification of species of plants that could be domesticated, and same with animals that could be domesticated. So with that, all of a sudden, you could grow food surpluses. You could go and get protein and milk from a cow. You could get wool from a sheep, and you had grain to create some bread and put that together. You're having some milk with some toast in the morning with a bit of pork on it and I'd say a bit of cheese. Fertile yeah. Crescent probably had cheese. Yeah, delicious. Imagine that bit of cheese, bit of bacon, bit of eggs, bit of toast <laughs> and wash it down with the orange juice or milk. I think that's, a, <laughs> that's pretty phenomenal. So we've also said here that due to the tilt of the axis, it was easier for those innovations and developments to spread east to west from Europe all the way across to Asia, where it was much more difficult to spread from Mexico up to Canada or from Mexico down to South America. So they were the ultimate causes, the tilt of the axes and the food surfaces. And with this extra food, all of a sudden people would go out there and do other things. It meant that we were able to have specialists in different areas. We created literature, we created technology, new innovations, new inventions, and we built institutions that were able to tie large groups of people together. So back to this book in one sentence. History followed different courses for different people because of differences amongst people's environments, not because of biological differences amongst the people themselves, 